Hey there, this is Jason and Paul, and we encourage you to follow us on Instagram at stateofloveandtrust underscore pod, where we can continue the conversation with you. Thanks for listening. And now, let's get to the show. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the State of Love and Trust, a Pearl Jam podcast. Jason Carapesi with you, with as always... Paul Gilliari. Paul, hello. How are you, Jason? I said that in my subdued Uncle Leah voice. (laughs) (laughs) Demeanor, sorry, off the rails already. Guys, if you didn't know, we are on Facebook and Instagram. Those are social media platforms that you should follow us on. And if you just look for our handle... State of Love and Trust podcast, you'll find us. We should download that podcast and we should rate and we should review it too. Absolutely. What do you you think of that? I think it's a tremendous, you know what? Capital idea. Yeah. Not just an excellent idea, a capital idea. And I think you should also subscribe to us if you haven't already. I mean, you probably are if you're listening to this right now. But, you know, apparently if you unsubscribe and then resubscribe, Apple has no clue what's going on. And then it like boosts numbers or something. You know, I had this thought the other day. We should, st- if you rate and review this podcast, we will give you a dollar. No, <laughs> a easy dollar, there, cowboy. A dollar Canadian. <laughs> no offense, well, Canada. No, I, we should like pluck some of these out and and read them on you know, the show and share them. Both both the ones that are positive and the ones that are exemplary as well. This way, people get a well-rounded view. No, even the ones that are critical, Jason, I am fully dedicated to a growth I'm mindset. I'm down. I am down. Yes. It'll be like our mean tweets. Yeah, exactly. I am exactly. stealing Kimmel's bit. That's what we're going to do. If See? I was the guy listening to this podcast right now, I'd be saying, all right, guys, get on with it. We're only like Let's 45 go. seconds in. I've only killed like less than a minute. It's fine. You have, you have. I helped right, you kill right. that minute though. Now I feel loosey-goosey. I feel good. I feel ready to roll. Me that too. was the opening calisthenics. Unique brown cow. <laughs> All right, here we go. For reals. This is the show, guys. This is what we're going to do this week. We have got... Um, it's a topic that is been debated for a long time. We haven't talked about it because we only had a show for a few months, but... It is, who is your favorite drummer? It feels like it could be a softball. I'm like, oh, it's so-and-so, or it's so-and-so. Well, you might change your mind. We'll see. So we're going to run through that, the chronology of the drummer that is, uh, that is in this band, um, all the way from Dave Cruzen. Actually, I should say, all the way from Matt Cameron to Matt Cameron. Yeah. And yeah. that will make we're, sense we're to you temple. in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> And then after that, what we'll do is we will do a, a new what if. And the what if is, what if Boom Gaspar never entered the band? And then we've got, of course, our live cut and lyric of the week. But first, Paul, let's talk about drummers. Let's talk about drummers. So, Drum roll. As we discussed last week, that was Matt Chamberlain. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very unique time signature. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's only in the band for three weeks, but eh, very unique. <laughs> so we're going to try and give you a little chronology here. We're not going to try and get too far in the weeds, but you know, we're going to navigate this as best we can. So things are happening. Mother Love Bone you know, goes away. And apparently, 
Matt Cameron was considered for the band originally. Well, he drummed on their instrumental demo. Exactly. So he's in there doing a solid for the band, getting those demos together for him. And then Cruzen, Dave Cruzen, he auditioned for them. Well, first, you should mention that demo got passed on to Jack Irons, who will figure into this conversation. Correct. Okay, so we're kind of, this is fine. We're jumping around a little bit, but that's fine. That's fine. This is great. So, yeah, obviously, eventually that tape will get to Eddie through Jack. But the the thing is, is that Matt Cameron is the start of all this. Uh, Yeah. It's very encyclical. Obviously, he was in Soundgarden at the time, so he couldn't do this. He couldn't commit to both bands. So, in comes Dave Cruzen, Okay. And he joins the band like one week before that first off-ramp show. And he had, um, let's say, alcohol-inspired personal problems, as I think is the best way to put that. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, he had to go into rehab. And this is happening kind of right before is it the fir- their first European tour. Is that, is that correct? Mm-hmm. They were going to go to the UK, and he had to kind of peace out. And Ed had a lot of really good things to say about him. Obviously, he recorded on 10. That, that's his, his writing credit. Um, he did actually get a, writing, a proper writing credit on the song release. And so he did a bunch of various club gigs in the Small West Coast tour preceding the recording of 10. And his last show was actually a rap party for the movie Singles, if you can believe that. So that was Dave Cruzen. So then he's like, okay, I can't do this anymore. And he, we bring in Matt Chamberlain. So Matt Chamberlain comes in after Dave goes into rehab. His only credit that I am aware of is being the drummer on the Alive video. Yes, he was the the band's first televised drummer. Correct. So he does that right before they leave for England to mix 10. And then he gets a call from G.E. Smith in the Saturday Night Live band and says, hey, this is a dream gig. I'll see you guys later. Mm-hmm. So he, he was literally there for like three or four weeks. But he did suggest the next drummer to the band, actually. He absolutely did. He was buddies with, maybe he's still his buddies, with Dave Abruzzisi. And they were buddies back in um, the Dallas music scene. Now, Dave, obviously, many of us know Dave from, from the, the 10 Tour, Versus, Vitalogy. Those are the albums that he was on. He actually has writing credits for... Uh, Go, he's the principal songwriter for Go, even the guitar riff. Um, WMA, Angel, Last Exit, Pride 2, Aya Davinita. And he toured with the band, like I said, from 10 through the beginning of the Vitalogy and left right before the album was finished recording. Um, did, did you know, Jason, that when when Matt Chamberlain reached out to Dave mm-hmm. and they sent Dave the tape... Dave loved it so much. Shortly thereafter, he actually got the tattoo of the stick man on his arm. I did not know that, actually. Yeah, that is a tremendous level of commitment to... to, to you get hired for a gig, right? And it's like, I'm going to tattoo this, right? I'm going to tattoo this indelible image of this gig on my arm. That's how stoked I am to be a part of this band. I just thought it was a pretty cool little aside there. Do you know when he did that? Because... Mm-hmm. In the, in the notes that I, I, I was going through, and, and I found an interview from 1993 with Modern Drummer uh, with the writer uh, Matt Pekin, Pekin. Mm-hmm. and um, he said that he 
originally didn't have the emotional connection with the music. He liked the music a lot, but didn't have the immediate connection to play it how he... He wasn't confident in the way that he was going to be playing it because obviously it was these four guys that had written this music and he was coming in to do a job. And it took him a while to kind of like find his place in the performance of the, of the songs. Well, what's funny about that is if, if you go back to Pearl Jam 20, I think, I think they interviewed Chamberlain in Pearl Jam 20. I'm pretty sure he, he actually said that they sent Dave the tape and Dave was like, this is the shit. I love it, man. This is awesome. And then he goes and he gets the... Uh, the stick man tattoo. And so I thought what's interesting is that the different perceptions of it, like on one hand, maybe he's telling Matt True. that because he wants the job. You know what I mean? It's, Oh, I'm going to tour with these guys for sure. And then on the, on the flip side, maybe he's like, well, you know, like I listened to the songs and they are all right. You know I mean? Well, he, I mean, he admittedly left high school and like, I think when he was like in a sophomore or something like that and just wanted to play music, that's all he wanted to do. And some interesting nuggets I got from this interview is that he was actually the drummer recorded on state of love and trust. The song, uh-huh. the eponymous song of this podcast, he is on that recording for the single soundtrack. He's also on the uh, music video version of Evenflow. So his first kind of couple of credits are those. You know, playing 10 on the road, it sucked a lot out of him. He was kind of the new guy amongst the group but that was fairly tight. It took him a long time to be comfortable, as I was saying. Um, in, in, in a personal way as well, not just playing the music, but in a personal way. So it took him a while to feel like he was part of the group. And at the time of print of this particular interview, he said he had a positive outlook on Pearl Jam and that his inclusion and participation of the band that would go on for a while. He said they could, they could be a band forever. It's weird reading that you know, so many years later, 20, 27 years later, obviously he left the band probably 18 months from that point. Well, you, you, you join a band and you're just riding this wave where you're, you're on MTV Unplugged, you're doing Saturday, Saturday Night Live, uh, you know, you're just pounding away, you do single soundtrack, I mean, the Jeremy video, I mean, you got crowds everywhere. It's, I mean, yeah, if your goal was, I'm going to drop out of high school because I want to dedicate myself to music, you're now the drummer of the biggest, most awesome rock and roll band on the planet right now, you know? And I completely see where that outlook kind of, falls yeah. into place but on the flip side i can see where it all falls apart when your lead singer is suddenly rejecting all of that publicity and that's literally what what attracted you to this whole outfit you know what i mean and, and this gig and you're like ah man i, I just want to let's be as big as we can be and eddie the, eddie's there saying you know what that's the last thing i want you know and then so you have these these tensions and then you throw the Ticketmaster thing in which i'm sure you were about to bring up exactly yeah, it's uh, what ultimately came to a head was the fact that, or one of the things was, you know, there's personal conflicts, there's political disagreements, and then, and then there's the big, the inability to communicate well with Ed and Jeff, as Stone yeah. put it. And Stone mentioned that he didn't think that the blame was entirely on one side or the other. He didn't say what the percentages were, but he said, you know, there was fault on both sides with, with that communication issue. And so, you know, you talk about, Ed trying to pull back and Jeff trying to pull back from this whole fame thing. And he, when you make your life music, you assume that that's the point of music is to get to a point where you're so big that you can, you know, share music with everybody. And that's the lifestyle that you want. Well, that's not necessarily what, you know, the guys and Jeff and Ed specifically were aiming for when they wrote these songs. It just kind of happened. So you have these two different approaches towards a music career and you know, they came from different worlds. I mean, as we said before, glorified G, you know, that that's Ed mocking Dave. 
because Dave told him that he bought a couple of guns. Oh, they're glorified pellet guns. It's no big deal. And so that's where that song came from. It just didn't work out. And you know, he was a very powerful drummer. And it really suited the energy of what the guys were doing at that time. So when I think about that era, I 100% think of Dave. And he, he brings the house down with the way he plays those songs. You watch some of the old videos, like of Deep, for example, and it's just like, holy hell, man. Those, just, those songs just crush in a different way back then. You know, we talk about Ed's voice, you know, the versions of Black or Alive or Oceans or they just hit a different way because of Ed's voice, you know? Mm-hmm. But they also hit a certain way because of Dave's playing. So there is a, a bit of a miss in that regard with some of the older songs and they play them nowadays because right. of how he played, I think. Um, but it's easy to see how Vitalogy was his last record. And I wonder, right. you know, I wonder what it would have sounded like if Jack came in earlier. Because that album, to me, feels more like it's in Jack's wheelhouse than it is Dave's. What do you think about that? You know, I think we're lucky that Jack didn't. And I say that only because I feel as though, and I, the average Pearl Jam fan might agree with this, that their first three albums are canonical. And so you see clearly Jack's influence in bringing a more eclectic, more experimental sound to an album like No Code. Um, I think, you know, it's just to make some Beatles analogies here, I think No Code is more... Uh, it, it seems more parallel to something along the lines of like Sgt. Pepper or a revolver, or one of those types of albums from the Beatles catalog. Whereas to me, I always felt like Vitology was their white album. You know, you get this, especially when you look at uh, the Foxy mop handle. I mean, it's, it's hard not to Jack's to contribution. Uh, yeah. Well, there you go. But I, I just think that when you look at an album like Vitology, um, What's unique about it is there's still those those very prescient like rock hooks in there. I mean, they didn't want to put, I shouldn't say they, Eddie didn't want to put Better Man on the album. He had to be cajoled into doing it, right. you know? So I, I think that there was still this desire to put together a great rock album, despite the fact that there was this conscious effort to um, resist conventional. But that effort wasn't fully realized until no code and so i think dave was still the right drummer for all of that it's just all this happened during the Ticketmaster fiasco and so you know dave told uh spin magazine back in 2001 he said i just soured i didn't agree with the Ticketmaster stuff at all yeah and i think that was where you saw the divide happen right you know, and, and uh that was the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back like so. why would you want to make it harder for your fans to come to a show. We want our fans to come to any show where we accept yes. all people. And that's what, that's what he's, I assume he's yeah. trying to say. And, and the rest of the band is trying to make a statement because they can, but Dave's yeah. still, he's still the new guy. He's been there for three years, you know, but he still probably feels like an outsider to some degree. So, I mean, we could probably talk about Dave for a long time, but we'll move on. Yeah. Um, well, we may, if he's one of our favorite drummers. I don't want to just, I don't want to give anything away. I don't want to lean mm. anyway, you know, mm. guys. Uh, so Jack Irons. So Dave leaves and they call in, they call in Jack. And now, funny enough, he was actually asked to join in 1990, much like Matt, uh, yeah. but he declined. And what Matt recorded on those demos, the Mama's Son uh, songs, for example, they passed that demo to Jack and said, you know what? I got a guy who can sing on this for you down in San Diego. So he did that. Obviously, we know the rest of that story. 
Um, and then on top of that, he also asked his friends in the Chili Peppers to let PJ open for them on their Blood Sex Magic Tour. Mm-hmm. So Jack's already doing doing a job for him in 1990, 1991. Fast forward to 94, and he comes in at the very end of the Vitalogy recording sessions. And like you said, somehow, I guess he's the writer for, one of the writers for uh, Foxy Mop. That, we'll call it a track. I don't know if it's a song. but Well, it was kind of like just this added thing at the very end before it went to went to press, right? I mean, I, I feel like Dave was cast off and then they decided, you know, we're going to roll with Jack and they figured, you know what, <laughs> well, let's just put Jack on this album too. Yeah, and, and they, Exactly. So they do that. And then the first proper show for Jack was the bridge benefit shows. Um, yep. about, well, I want to say like about a month or so later after they finished doing that. And I I know, didn't he record Mirrorball with uh, the that's band? Later. And that's that's next, later. That's, that's in 95, I believe. Okay. Um, or if it's if it's in ninety four, it is in ninety five. You're right, it is in ninety five. Because it was released in ninety five, but forgive me if I don't know when exactly when they were recorded. Uh, Mirror and Merkin, uh, but um, I have to look that up. But anywho, so he he plays those Bridge Benefit shows, and no one is like, oh, it's a different drummer. Okay, maybe they got, maybe Dave's sick or something because they didn't have it, they didn't announce anything at the time. But you know, when they come around, and I believe we spoke about the Constitution Hall show. Maybe it might have been a live cut of the week actually for Tremor Christ. I think I think it's where he chose that song from. No, that was the first like proper show that Jack did in DC in '95. I want to say it was January 14th, if I recall correctly. And so now Jack's in this band, and he obviously, as we said, a very different style of drumming. How he used a trash can lid as a symbol sometimes, and he was the right guy at the right time. Um, and he allowed the band to dive into uncharted, strange waters of no code. And he helped them find their way through that and through the Ticketmaster fiasco and out the other side to record Yield, which is a very collaborative process for everybody. And, and Jack was that bonding agent that the band needed, right? Mm-hmm. So after all that happens and they're feeling kind of back to themselves. Um, and I think we, you said it before, you know, Jack was what they needed. They, they needed yeah, I mean, something that we to, talked about. I, I think we had a, what if Dave had never been fired and we both agreed they probably wouldn't be together as a band. Right. I mean, it's hiring Jack is most likely what saved them as a band. Yeah. So that was, this is a major turning point. Um, and another major turning point is, you know, they record yield um, and they decide to go out to Maui for a couple of, a couple of shows. And they go out to Australia for a couple of shows. Um, we actually mentioned last week, um, our, one of our favorite shows of all time from that yield tour was Melbourne. March 5th, night three, yeah. Melbourne. Yeah. And Melbourne. Uh, I keep saying Melbourne. It's okay. <laughs> That's all right. We're American. Yeah. And the accents come out. Um, but yeah, so he, as we've spoken before, we, when we talked about around the bend, we talked about him missing his kids. And, and so it, it was a long time coming, right? He was, well, I say that, but I, I, and I know that that that's part of the story, Jason, but I've come to learn and I don't know how this escaped me. Apparently, Jack had a, or has perhaps, I don't know, a bipolar condition. And oh. part of the reason he left the band was he felt like he needed to really deal with that. Um, I had never heard that before. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, so. that on top of everything else that we've learned about his exit being, you know, he was a little bit older than the rest of the guys. Maybe he just yeah. wasn't down to be doing two to two and a half hour shows every night. And right. he just decided, hey... I got to take a break and I, maybe he hoped that the band would take a break with him and they're like, nah, sorry, man. And so, Hey, 
let's try Matt Cameron one more time. Yeah. And so enter Matt Cameron and they give him about, Hey, can you like help us out for this summer tour? Sure. What do you mean to do? Can you learn any songs in two weeks? Yeah. <laughs> so, Oh, by the way, before we get to Matt, I just want to rattle off some of Jack's credits here. So obviously, like I said, he recorded mm-hmm. on no code and yield. His writing credits are Foxy Mop, Who You Are, In My Tree, Red Mosquito, I'm Open, Red Dot, Whale Song, All Night, Happy When I'm Crying. So he's some either gems principal, in there, my man. Some either principal or or contributing songwriter to all those songs. So Jack left his imprint. Moving on to Matt, though. So it comes into '98. Um, I guess you'd say April for the first part of the of the U.S. tour. And as we said before, he was invited back in 1990, but he couldn't do it. But now it's 1998 and Soundgarden has dissolved or gone on hiatus or whatever you want to call it in 97. So he's available now. So he says, okay, I will help you guys out. And apparently initially it was going to be like a, hey, just help us out for a while. And he was cool with that. And then they realized that he really helped them both on a personal level, but also he elevated their playing. Mm -hmm. So he comes in and I mean, Mike McCready says that Matt made them a quote way better band. Great, he, that, that, he does. That benefits everybody, right? <laughs> yeah. So I mean, Ed, Ed Ved said, you know, Matt Cameron writes songs, and we run to find step stools in order to reach his level. What comes naturally to him leaves us with our heads cocked like confused dogs that we are. This Eventually is the liner notes it. of Lost Dogs, right? It's so great. Yeah. Did we mention he's the greatest drummer on the planet? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great compliment. It's fantastic. It so I mean. We, we know Matt the best. If you're listening to this and you're under the age of 30, you probably only really recognize Matt as the drummer of the band. Um, we're a little bit older than that. We're, we're chasing 40 here, my friend. But um, So we, we, we remember Jack. We remember uh, Dave Rapazisi. And you know Matt was obviously on Binaural, Riot Act, Pearl Jam, Backspacer, Lightning Bolt, and Gigaton. His writing credits include, I know you hate this song, but Evacuation, In the Moonlight, Save You, Crop Duster, You Are, Get Right, Unemployable, The Fixer, Johnny Guitar, Dance of the Clairvoyance, and Take the Long Way. Okay? A lot of credits there. Obviously, there's a lot more albums to, to pull from. And I'm going to, I want to, that's kind of the history, right? We kind of tried mm-hmm. to collapse the, the chronology of, of drumming. Um, when they posed the question, or I guess when Cameron Crowe posed this question to the band for Pearl Jam 20, it was a silly little vignette that lasted about 90 seconds. because they Which didn't was unfortunate it. that it was... Um, I know. It, it there was, was cute, this cavalier but, attempt to address what I think is a significant part of their history. And it's interesting because the, it was so important and significant, but they must have some very serious issues with it because they didn't include... Dave A on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame roster. Well, Mike has come out since and said that he should have been included, that he should have been inducted with them as a band. I'd have to find the I mean, article where he the, says it, but there is an interview with Dave saying, and this is I want to say after the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, saying, mm-hmm. you know, how I couldn't believe that I was left off of that. He seemed to um, accuse the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, not the band, but mm-hmm. said, hey. You know, Pearl Jam has always gone after injustices, and this is an injustice, so I'm waiting to see how they're going to respond. It's like, when I heard that they were getting inducted and Dave wasn't included, but Dave Cruson was, yeah, I was like, <laughs> how do you, I don't understand. But it was like, oh, we'll take your first drummer and the current one, and, and I, I don't know, man. I think, um, 
it's weird. I think, I, I think it was a very fumbled attempt to handle a rather awkward situation. Right. Ultimately, it just made it worse. They tried to be cute about it. Yeah. And, you know, like, what was it? It was like awkward, like shrugs and smiles. Like, oh, yeah, drummer, huh? Can we move on? But I wish they would some, I wish somebody would force them to really explain at some point, hey, well, you know, it's no hard feelings to the fans. You know, things happen. But what, what did happen, you know? At any rate, um, we don't know. And maybe we'll find out something. Maybe we won't. But I want to ask you, after we've gone through the entire history here, lots of different styles, lots of different personalities, um, lots of different songwriting. Um, maybe some guys have contributed tastier songs to your liking. What, what do you think? Who, who is your favorite drummer in the band's history? For the longest time, it was Dave. Because Dave essentially was a part of the band's history that to me was the most uh, indelible. However, as I've grown older and the band's newer music continues to speak to me in new and ever-growing ways, I've come to realize that I think it's Matt Cameron and, and it's not even close. And I say that because... You know, Matt comes in, he's got this like grinder approach to his craft and you've read off some of the compliments of the other band members about him. So I won't reiterate those, but he's got this very bizarre time signature style to him. And the songs that always seem to like just tickle me in the best of ways on their out. Like when I first heard Binaural, I mean, I, of the girl, I didn't even understand it, but I, I knew there was something about it that was just magnetic. And I mean, you're not a fan of Sleight of Hand. I am. We go back and forth over this all the time. I Never. love that song. It was it was my favorite song on that album at the time. Get but out of here. Are you I serious? I swear to God, it was, man. It was, uh, there was something about it that I just thought Hold was on. so Hold on. unique. I, I got to do a quick sidebar here with you then, because the last episode, we're talking about Yield, right? And the Yield mm-hmm. tour. And you're like, you, your number one pick Spoiler alert for whoever hasn't listened to that previous episode about the Yield Tour. Your favorite show was the Forum show, right? Mm-hmm. And you chose it because it was a, quote, fucking rock show. It was. So, you know, like That's me, it. I appreciate a fucking rock show. Sure. What's the exact opposite of a fucking rock show? Sleight of hand. So, so, so it, your argument is, uh, here, here, let me ask you this. If, if I said, and it's not, but if I said my favorite song off of Backspacer was, uh, uh, you know, The End, or, uh, or my favorite song off No Code was, I don't know, Around, around the Bend. I mean, if, if, if it's a ballad of any kind, does that mean it, you, it, so. I would still, I would Your still logic is flawed. Incorrect, invalid, erroneous. <laughs> I would I would act similarly because but I'm doing the uh, the confused head cocked uh, dog <laughs> thing right now because I would say really there are there are a bunch of hard you know hard to medium rock songs on the album you'd figure that doesn't mean they're all good man hold on <laughs> let the man speak jeez go you'd think of all the other songs on the album presumably. You would like a lot of them. And then presumably as a fan who got into the band during 10 verses, you would err toward a harder rock song as your favorite on the album. Yeah, I was a teenager when I got into them. Probability, (laughs) probability wise. Yeah, but you chose chose the form as your favorite. uh, Have we already forgotten Paul's black story? 
We have already forgotten where I was a song I was I was not attracted to because I was young, ignorant, and stupid, and then I grew older. Hey. And I, I saw the beauty of I'm this just saying, amazing a week song. Ago, you may your your big thing was a fucking rock show. That's a live performance. Hey. We we love we love rock rock songs, right? We do love rock songs. My whole idea here is that the probability suggests that you would prefer a rock song. Okay, I will give you that. I will give you that the probability that Paul's favorite song off by Neural is Sleight of Hand is a very, it's a low on, on a percentage scale. Okay. You, I by, accept by the most account, You had every right to say, get out of here. But I did. to challenge me, to challenge me, I doth protest. <laughs> Perhaps too much. <laughs> Perhaps too much. <laughs> uh, that was good. Okay, so Carry as on, I was sorry, saying, that was a sidebar. I, but yeah, it was. I know these songs. Arrival, another great one where you get that really bizarre time signature. There's just something about his delivery. It's just there's. It's so crisp, but it's very layered and nuanced and complicated. And when they did Riot Act again, my favorite song off Riot Act is "You Are," and he he wrote the. Um, Okay, so if, if you look back, it's like he's feeding these chords through a drum machine. You know what I mean? And, yep. and he somehow managed to turn his instrument and, and just the, the idea, the concept of percussion into this very like, like organic, alive element um, that's just kind of constantly present in the band's music as opposed to a part of a whole, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see it throughout all of the subsequent albums that he's been a part of. Uh, and it has nothing to do with tenure. You know what I mean? I'm not saying, oh, he's my favorite drummer because he's been with the band the longest right. or because it's come full circle. I think for me, it's just one of those things where, look, you go back and uh, Getty Lee, I'm not a big Rush guy, but Getty Lee goes out, I'm going to do a solo album in 2000, right? He picks Matt Cameron to occupy that did seat really? and drum. He did, yeah. Uh, Billy Corgan had... Um, Matt Cameron drum on a song on a door. Uh, my favorite song of all time from Soundgarden off Super Unknown is Fresh Tendrils. Mm. And he actually helped write the lyrics. And the, the, the backbeat on that song just kills. It's, he crushes it, you know? I'm not a fan of The Fixer. I just think it, it, it's, it's just not a Pearl Jam song on so many levels. I love that it is because they deserve to be happy. But, <laughs> but the guitar riffs are solid. And that came from Matt Cameron's demo, Need to Know, which was actually featured on the Pearl Jam 20 doc you know but you are and crop duster were argued they were probably my favorite tracks and still are off riot act and he wrote the music for both he wrote the lyrics music drums and he played rhythm guitar on you are dance the clairvoyance all right let's just bring it to the now dance the clairvoyance this guy like recreates a electronic drum machine sound live with his own drums I mean, it's just that approach. Take the long way. It's just reminiscent of Get Right with these like punky garage rock grooves. He just always seems to be at the center of their most creative, ambitious, out-of-the-box moments in a way that's not Foxy Mop Handle Mama. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and I just can't help but enjoy that without, you know, it, like take a song like In the Moonlight. I love that song, and I don't even know why I like it. I really don't, but whenever it plays on my it's iPod, I just, to it. I just let it go, you know? And so you mentioned the liner notes. There's just something about the guy that he does make the band better, and I don't think the other drummers, other than Jack, necessarily made them better. I love Dave's contribution to the band. I love what he added to the songs, but I don't think he made them necessarily a better band. And I feel like... Every album Pearl Jam releases, 
Matt Cameron's influence is going to make the album stronger. He's going to add elements of music that would, that would be absent otherwise for whatever that's worth. Well, that's a very good answer. Even if I made you have a detour. Um, for the longest time, like you, I, I preferred Dave A. Um, like you, I grew up with 10 verses and the drumming on, I, I can't say records because he didn't drum on 10, but the drumming of those of that era, mm-hmm. I grew up on that. And like I said before, that that powerful with the little accents, and he, he said he would often try and stay in the group, but then kind of play off what uh, Stone and Mike were doing with his cymbals. Right. And he wasn't too much he wasn't too much of a of a fill guy, but he would kind of play in between the lines, as it were. And I thought what he did in the live setting was magical. I really did. He brought the energy of the tracks to life. He was like the quintessential rock band drummer. He absolutely I mean? was. Like, and the as, look, a, as a the sound, all of it, hundred percent. And as someone who who got into the band in that time, and uh, that was the sound that I latched onto and preferred, and, and to, a, to a degree still to prefer overall. Um, that's that was Pearl Jam to me. That's the sound. Now I'm very grateful to Jack. I think his musical contributions are solid if off the beaten path and, and not something that I ordinarily give much chance to. And his drumming style is very unique. It's not my favorite, but what he did for the band is so important. Matt for a long time sort of bored me. Hmm. He's I not, have a solution he, to that, by the way. Oh God. No, That's it's a good one. You'll okay. like this. Go ahead. You know, when you're, just driving around town, you got Pearl Jam blasting in your car. Usually, yeah. Just yeah, as do I. I always try to drum with my hands on the steering wheel. Oh, all the time. And and I find that it's like you know, if I'm like drumming the end of Rearview Mirror or Porch or or, or, or you know anything off, I, I I'm not saying I could drum like Dave. I mean, <laughs> I'm an idiot in his car, okay. But I will say this: when I put like it becomes a fun challenge to try and like drum on your steering wheel to, oh, yeah. to Matt Cameron play. I swear to God, it literally makes you like the songs more as bizarre as that sounds. You should it doesn't try sound sometime. bizarre at all. I'm absolutely going to try that. Yeah, you should try it sometime. Well, I said for a long time, but I think that was partly because I was still sort of, I don't want to say stuck, but I was still gravitating toward the earlier stuff. And the way that he played it, wasn't what I was used to. So it just didn't seem, quote, right. It was the oddball, you know, bizarre time signatures. So, but even, even the straight ahead rock songs, it just because it didn't sound like Dave, it didn't sound like Pearl Jam in my, in my unmature, That's fair. immature, you know, musical brain. You know, it was just, it was fine. It just wasn't, I wasn't like super stoked until 2006. Mm. When I saw them in San Diego and the two, LA forum shows. And it was that tour that they start started to do um, extended drum solos in the middle of Evenflow. Oh God, he kills those. And I didn't really know. He I mean, I knew that he was in Soundgarden and I, and I love Soundgarden. So I, I didn't dislike Matt. I just was like, oh, you know, he's, he sits in the pocket. He does a job. It's fine. Right. So the, then when he starts finishing off the solo break and Evenflow, as opposed to just Mike finishing it and Stone coming back in, I was like, say what now? Yeah. <laughs> you, you can do you can do what now? Okay. I was like, wow, this guy, this guy, I shouldn't have to judge him on a drum solo 
but it just opened my eyes to what he's capable of. And so it mm-hmm. allowed me to see the rest of what he does when he's normally just in the pocket drumming. So I started to pick up on it more and I started to you watch him. You had to see him. it to believe it, huh? I did. And I, I started noticing him more or focusing on him more just watching songs than watching Ed or watching Stone. He or makes whatever. it look so easy when you watch him too. He does. The dude is 57 years old right now and he's yeah. still doing that business. So I'm like, this guy is a monster. And he's a legend. You, 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 you add to that the songwriter credits that you just articulated so well. And it, it just, I have to agree with you. It has to be Matt. Yeah. It has to be Matt. And it's, you know, Jason from 10 years ago may not have agreed with you. Or I guess, what is this? No, 15 years ago, I wouldn't have agreed with you necessarily. But once that tour hit, I, I really kind of just saw the light as it were. Yeah, when you think about the, his contributions to Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, and all the guest spots in between, it's hard to argue he's not the greatest drummer of our generation. He's very underrated. I don't I think mean, people that, talk that, about that. Like that is that is that's not um, that's not a ridiculous statement, you know? No, I mean there, there are certain guys like um, Josh Freeze who's all over like Perfect Circle Records, and he's he's sat in for tons of bands doing studio work, and he's phenomenal. Um, but, but I mean, Matt has done it consistently for 30 some odd years. Right. I mean, hell, he was on that Spider-Man song with yeah. Josie Scott and Nick uh, or Chad Kroger, for exactly. Christ's sake. Come on. Hero. If it's good enough, uh, if it's good enough for Nickelback, it's good enough for me. <laughs> I thought when that, when I, that song first came out, I was like, yeah, this is one of those cheese dick rock songs for a whatever. It's fine. And then when I saw, they had a music video and Matt Cameron's playing, I go, is that Matt? <laughs> it was so weird. I was like, "Where? how did this marriage come into being? It must've been like a, like a, the record company was like, Hey, we got a, Matt, could you help us out? We got Chad and Josie, blah, blah, blah. Like do us a solid. That was just so weird. But anyways, I'm agreeing with you, man. It's, it's gotta be Matt. I like it when we're simpatico. Simpatico. Yeah. All right. We have exhausted that. Let us move on to what if. This week's What If, What If, Boom Gaspar never joined Pearl Jam. What do you say, Mr. Gilleri? Well, the funniest, most interesting part about Boom's inclusion in the band to me is how it got started, right? So you have Eddie, he loves to surf, he does his thing in Hawaii, he's, uh, he's with CJ Ramon, I guess they're surfing buddies apparently, and uh CJ introduces him to Kenneth Boom Gaspar, right? Who's apparently like well-known in the, the Hawaiian music scene at the time, obviously still is. And he's performed with all these different artists out there. I mean, the guy's much older, right? So he's been doing this for four or five decades at this point. So he's kind of like an institution on the islands when it comes to being a musician. So Eddie apparently didn't know this. <clears throat> and Boom had no idea who the hell Eddie was. <laughs> Not only that, Boom had no idea who the hell Pearl Jam were. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's just not his thing, apparently. I don't know. So, he, you know, they're just hanging out, and they're surfing, and they're just chilling. And, you know, the, uh, the Honolulu advertiser, because they had interviewed Boom, and he said, you know, I just knew him as my friend Eddie. 
I didn't know how big he was. I just loved him for how he was and how he came off to us. So it just became this beautiful marriage that just was born out of friendship. And when I say marriage, I mean as a band, obviously. But, you know, many months after they meet, they're hanging out, they're friends. And then suddenly that's when Boom learns that that Eddie actually is a musician Mm -hmm. and he performs in a band. And Eddie was reluctant. He didn't want to say which band he was in. And so I, apparently, uh, Boom says, he recalls, he goes, you know, Eddie said, oh, I, I, it's just some Seattle band. We're just kicking it around, <laughs> right? And so Boom prodded him. He's like, well, yeah, which band? You know, I, mean, I probably don't know, but which band? And he goes, it's Pearl Jam. And apparently, Boom, he, he's, he, uh, he's on record as saying, who's that? <laughs> like, but, but, like, authentically unaware, yeah. like, just totally in the dark That's about awesome. it, right? Just did not realize just, like, how iconic these guys are. And I guess Eddie just couldn't help but laugh. I mean, he was just, you know, busting up at this point. And, you know, they just started jamming, you know, because you're hanging out, you're comfortable with somebody, you, you just start jamming. And that, of course, eventually led to some sounds that became Love Boat Captain. And uh, what I find fascinating is they don't usually, like, Boom's not really on records a lot, you know what I mean? A lot, like, a lot of the parts people think are Boom, like, oh, you know, boom, he, he's on the keys, right? He must have done the keys for future days on Lightning. No, that's Brendan O'Brien, you know? And so it, there's something, it's this Brendan O'Brien and boom, like the, the killer bees that they have, you know yeah. what I mean? This in their back pocket, and they're, they're like little secret weapons to the band. And I think about boom and how his appearances live just add an element to the music that I've always wanted to see i always wanted to see keys in the band and there's just certain songs like black and obviously future days is i i can't even okay i shouldn't say i can't listen to a live version of future days unless it starts with boom on the keys but my favorite versions of that song all do begin that way and there aren't many of them by the way um what about, what about crazy mary and the dueling uh, that's oh dude oh god yeah <laughs> like when he's dueling with mike i mean that's literally it's epic i mean it, it's right up there we should do a show where we just talk about like just top 10 in general just pearl jam moments live you know what i mean and that to me is, is uh, well, you should add it to the notes man but that right there that's on that list for me because it was i mean that's the type of thing where you, you'll listen to it and you'll digitally just like you know hold the button down and then it goes back to where it was again like an old vcr and you'll listen to that again because it just crushes man so anyway what would happen if the band had never added boom into the mix um i think the music live suffers and because of that i think booms you know jeff once said that they perform live i'm sorry they uh they make records so they can perform live yes okay so that's how i always view the, the band too by the way Exactly. I've gotten, so, I've so flack that, on the boards before for saying how are these songs going to sound live because that's the experience of Pearl Jam. Well, exactly. I get, I, get, I get booed, but like that's that's it. Well, it's, uh, poppycock. But <laughs> <laughs> the point here is that when you think about a band that makes records because they want to play live, that means that playing live and making a record are, are intrinsically linked. So, how do you play music? for months on end with Boom Gaspar and that not inform what happens in the studio later, whether Boom's with you or not. You know what I mean? I just think it, it bleeds into the entire experience. And so I don't know if we get Avocado, Backspacer, um, Lightning Bolt, and Gigaton in the way that we do if Boom 
isn't the guy touring with them. I don't think he's just a dude they call to play parts in the song that are already there. I, I truly believe that there's somehow a far bigger influence in the music than that. Well, it's the only, I should say it's the only, uh, Love Boat Captain is the only song he's actually credited on. And you I know. think he's, he was credited on Wasted Reprise, but he wasn't. That's actually Stone. It's, it's really interesting with, with Boom because what he adds and what, how he elevates songs that even came before him that already had keys or even ones that didn't have keys in any capacity. Right. It's another level. It is. I don't, I don't know that you're going to get, like you said, certain songs, even covers that. I don't think they cover Love, Rain, or Me without him. And I honestly don't, if they don't hire him, they don't, if, they, if Ed and, and Boom don't meet, I don't think you'll ever, you'd ever see like a fixture of a keys player with them live. I don't think so. Either. I think they just, I think they would have written songs with it in mind, but it wouldn't be maybe as present because they wouldn't have the ability to do it live. Yeah. Well, they'll know when they're in the studio, we could totally do this because boom's going to be with us. Right. You know so, what I mean? So like you said, their headspace has, has changed since 2001 or whatever it was. Yeah. And you know, he obviously doesn't play on a number of songs that are before his time because they just, don't, you know, he's not needed on rats, for example. <laughs> no. But but the fact that he elevates the band much in the same way that Matt did joining the band right. means that they could go into the writing process and go, okay, what can we map out for Boom to make this kind of spark a little bit more? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't think they would have hired anybody else. And I think the albums would have been completely different. Um, I'm happy with how things turned out, though, because the live experiences are the number one thing for me personally. And I mean, you, you, we hear the reception he gets. Yeah, man. He's, he, he is a fan favorite and uh, I'm happy for him too, because just oh, yeah. as a humble native Hawaiian, he's said many times that he's, he's, it feels like he's living a dream. And uh, how can you not be happy for somebody? My wife knows who he is. I was researching <laughs> stuff the other night and she's watching some show and she looks over at my, at my screen and she goes, boom. <laughs> she knows. Nice. She knows. It all comes back to this. You know how, how, this, how awesome this guy is? Go back and watch um, Live in Cornice. Oh, I'm sorry, Imagine in Cornice, the Italian film. And go watch him when he goes into the organ um, or the, the church with all the organs in Pistoia. And he plays this beautiful number and then he puts his hands down and just kind of backs into the chair on the bench and kind of takes an exhale and like wipes his eyes of tears. Like this is kind of lovingly taps the, the organ, the keys. It's all like, the, it's being part of this band gave me the chance to sit here and play this. Right when was now. he ever going to get to Italy? Yeah, I mean, exactly. maybe he, maybe he had been, but like this brought him to places that he probably never would have been before. And yeah. he, he, it just feels like he's very grateful for the opportunity, but he, but he also knows how much everybody loves him. Mm -hmm. So all right, let's move on to the Lyric of the Week. All right, this week's Lyric of the Week comes from, hey, Avocado, Pearl Jam, and it comes from Marker in the Sand.
Paul. So let me start this one off. My my feeling with this song is, and this these lyrics in particular, is it reminds me of of being sick and being frustrated and being confounded that some people put so much stock in faith or their religion with seemingly diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when you're applying that faith to decisions that you know are meant to influence a lot of people. Not just you know you can make. I don't think anybody has a problem with anybody else. You know, making decisions that affect only themselves and where those decisions and those influences come from. But when it affects other people, that's when we have heads butting, right? Mm-hmm. And the easy example of this would be um, like e- evangelical politicians using their faith as an excuse to try and pass laws imposing their beliefs on others, like abortion laws or gay rights, right. that kind of thing. Also, the bigger picture of trying to answer life's biggest questions and solve life's biggest problems by simply, quote, having faith. And assigning God is the reason why something happens. Well, you know, people aren't comfortable with not knowing things. It's human nature to to find answers. So, in my opinion, you know, man created religion to spell out all that you know, all that they knew, all, all that they. I'm sorry, all that they didn't know, and and answer all those how and why questions. You know, back in the day, when, you know, long long time ago. That's natural to, to have that reaction, right? Sure. That seems, but it seems like a dangerous, antiquated thinking to the subject of this song which I feel like it actually is Ed um, mm-hmm. for the problem that we, we see now. So Ed slash the subject of this song might not have the solutions, um, but he feels accepting the unknown is far less dangerous than trying to explain it through faith. And moreover, trying to solve problems through faith and religion. So the outro says, you know, I, I know this is not part of our lyric of the week, but I feel like it, like it really applies here. The outro says, calling out, I'm calling you out. It's a direct challenge to whatever spirit you want to call it, God, gods, whatever, if they're actually there. So it's like, show yourself. People are making decisions in your name that don't feel right. What do you say? That is, I've had my own personal faith journey over the last 25 years or so. I was a Catholic altar boy, Um, had some revelations in high school and college, and I, I don't subscribe to that anymore, but it's... I find it very applicable um, in the grand scheme of things in society and, and how politics comes into play and how people impose um, their way of thinking on others. And that, mm-hmm. that can be from any point of view, um, that imposition and in and, and, and justifying it, using, using a, a faith in something to justify that kind of thing. And we can talk about the Middle East, we can talk about China, we can talk about anybody. Um, using the application and you know, fuck the Holocaust for Christ's sake. I mean, any number of ways you can apply this. And, and this was uh, one of the first times that I can remember Ed so um, directly and unabashedly calling out these questions and saying, "What the hell? What do you say?" So I, I don't know how you feel about it, but that's, I, I took it almost very literally, and I was intrigued to see um, the band be so direct about it. Right. Well, first of all, your take, I mean, the the view of, okay, I'm going to look at this song and I'm going to try to understand the song as it relates to the time period and when, when it was written and, and, you know, what I've learned from the band and what they've said about the song. And I, I think you nailed it. I really do. Um, as you know, I have a habit of taking a lot of their songs and recontextualizing them for what we love on the show today. Wait, I, I love the so. layers, baby. 
And so you mentioned, hey, you know, Eddie just call, calling somebody out. Well, you know what? I want to call somebody out right now, Jason. I'm sorry, Paul. Okay, I'm sorry. I like, want to call out. I want to. <laughs> I want to call out our executive branch of government. Okay. okay? And the reason I want to do that is because you have a president that is telling us that allowing me to vote by mail is going to result in a corrupt election. Uh, Telling me that it's going to lead to the end of our great Republican Party. It's going to become the scandal of our times. You have a a prediction from our executive branch that kids are going to be digging through mailboxes somehow in order to steal my ballot. That's what they do, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. Apparently, apparently, because the the kids, the youth is is such an active part of our voting process. Yeah. Right? (laughs) It should be, but in any case, um, so now you got, you know, this, this mail system that's basically being undermined and it's being undermined by groups of people who have, a record of, of advocating for privatizing the post office in the first place. Okay. And we're taking all of these steps basically that are very, very clearly designed to undercut what I believe should be a free and fair election. I don't care what party you vote for. If, if you don't want to go to the polls, I don't care if you're an independent a Republican, a Democrat, if you don't want to go to the polls because you're afraid that you're going to, Uh, get infected or you don't want to be in a public area, you should have the right to mail your ballot in. And you legally do in most states, by the way. Exactly. And not feel like your vote's not going to count because the government and the regime currently in place have decided that they can't trust your vote. So it's almost like, unless you're willing to risk your life, supposedly, to go to the polls, uh, sorry, no dice. If this isn't the most ridiculous, just it's the obvious attempt at voter fraud in reverse that I've ever, I don't even know what it is. It's so brazen. It is brazen. And so why I bring this up is because there's the line, there is a sickness, right? And it, but the line ends, it's feeling dangerous to me. Okay. And it reminds me of this Edmund Burke line where Edmund Burke said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Okay. And there's a danger in indifference. And watching sickness, I'm quoting the, the, the lyric here, watching sickness being sucked straight out to sea, right? That's what we're doing. Watching freedom. I just, freedom, pardon me. Watching freedom being sucked out to sea. Yeah. That's what we're watching happening right now. You know, that's literally what we're watching happening on so many levels. And so I can't help but when I, I first read these lines from you, that's literally the first thought that popped in my head. I'm like, yeah, I feel like I'm living this right now. And it's just, it's unfortunate on so many levels. That's I, I love how you grabbed that from those lyrics. I, I feel like sometimes I am um, guilty of not being able to see past uh, like literalness, is that a word, uh, of lyrics. And especially ones that jump off the page to me as obviously about something. I I, would ne- I don't think I ever would have really thought of the post office. No, <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> I don't blame exactly. you. Do you know what I mean? But like, but the way you explain it, it a hundred percent works. You know, he he literally this week reapplied for absentee ballots. By the way, that's just, it's basically the same thing as mail-in voting <laughs> in Florida because he said earlier in the week Florida's fine. They've got it all figured out. Really? Do they have it all figured out? Why don't you ask Ron DeSantis about his uh, COVID uh, situation down there? He's got really got it figured out. The idea that we're seeing um, 
you know, post boxes lifted out of the ground and put on flatbeds and removed. And 15% of the voting machines are being, uh, the uh, sorting machines that handle um, high flow mail are being removed. If you have to cheat to win, maybe that's an indication that you're not winning right yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know what else to say about that. I don't know. So I, I don't want to go down a whole rabbit hole here. Obviously, I we could go down these paths for a long time, guys. And um, it's, you know, it's not a politics show, but the, the thing is, is that a lot of these things that these guys write, they, they have these secondary and tertiary levels that, that they, you can apply these things. Like a song that just speaks to calling out the idea of faith right. and then applying it to calling out the faith in your government and the lack of faith you really should be having it right now. Brilliant writing. And uh, I mean, that song was Absolutely. in 2006 during the Bush years. Um, yeah. <laughs> Quality, once again, from the boys. Anyways, <laughs> let's move on to our live cut of the week. Ready to stand up! Paul, where are we going with Marker in the Sand? We're going to Canada. Ooh, Canada. I might be going there anyways. Yeah. <laughs> After well, all this. You, 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 you said we should be using the Bank of Canada to finance our uh, listener reward That's program, true. apparently. <laughs> the, the, uh, the, t- the tune, right? The tune, yeah. So, uh, May 9th, 2006. Here Air we go. Canada Center, Toronto. Marker in the sand. Um, according to Two Feet Thick, I didn't know this at the time, but I know it now. This is the first night of the first leg of the tour in support of Pearl Jam's self-titled new album at the time. And, you know, they jump on stage and what do they play? Master Slave as they walk up there. So it was, it, to me, it was like the band, re- and we've talked about this. For them, I think it was the band reborn on many levels. Mm, it was like yeah. the beginning of a new era. And, you know, these lyrics are very much in the vein of what we saw in some of the political commentary on verses. And um, it's just a quintessential Pearl Jam song. Uh, I, I know many people that think it's it, that have that as their favorite song off of Avocado, and they had a fantastic set. Um, it was an outstanding performance. I mean, obviously, Inside Jobs not the song in question here, but Mike gets up there with a double neck guitar. And um, it, 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 there's just so many of these little moments in the show that just felt like it was first time, by the way, with inside job. I, I know, I know. It just it just felt like it was. If I wasn't there, but I know somebody that was, and he said that it felt like he was watching Pearl Jam for the first time, but he he said he had seen them twice before, um, and I, that comes out in this rendition. So. I, I think that you'll you'll hear a, a, a reinvigorated, purposeful band playing a song that is very reminiscent of the thematic and um, musical intonations that we saw from them in in their their heyday. All right. Well, Toronto has got a lot of really good shows over the years, and uh, this was one of them. And this is a great uh, great version of this song. It's May ninth, two thousand six, in Toronto. There is a marker 
not the um, not the song that you hear the most often off that record or or in general, but a song that I find very interesting and I love the version that you've chosen. And um, I, you know, like we said with my, many other songs um, during this stretch of shows we've done without a tour, it's one of the songs that I think they could have pulled out and played in this tour, and it really would have worked in the climate that we are living in, like WMA. I really want to uh, mention, guys, uh, coming up, uh, coming up pretty soon, we are going to have a series of shows. Um, we have a four or five part series on Pearl Jam tribute bands, and we are going to do some interviews with some bands that you may know, um, and they're going to be fun. And we're going to put together a little special to precede all these interviews, and it's going to be great. So. Keep watching this space. Uh, keep listening. Um, not sure when we're going to launch them, but they're coming soon. So we will have a new show for you next week. Um, it, what's great, by, guys, please uh, interact if you want to interact. Uh, comment. Send us messages on Instagram or Facebook. We, we had a wonderful conversation with a, with a guy from, from Melbourne um, just a couple of nights ago. And um, it got us thinking about more ideas for more shows, um, specifically about certain countries and maybe having some of you guys on the show so keep listening uh keep interacting we love it when you listen and uh paul any any closing thoughts i thought you hit the nail on the head there buddy well then i guess you've been listening to the state of love and trust (laughs) 